1: Please note that this edition contains discussion of extreme violence, rape, sexual violence and politicised violence against women, which listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Naomi Smith. Sexism and misogyny remain pervasive across society. In some cases, that extends to violence and we are sadly all too familiar with Britain's shameful statistics on it. Two women a week are murdered by their partner or an ex in the UK, which is nine times the rate for men. Almost a third of British women will experience domestic violence at some point. And in the year to March 2019, the most recent date for which figures are available, 1.6 million women in the UK were the victims of domestic abuse. According to the CPS, 93% of defendants in domestic abuse court cases are men and 84% of the victims are women. During lockdown, calls to women's helplines have surged. In light of these figures, it might be hard to believe that misogyny is becoming even more dangerous and extreme. Online groups are targeting boys to radicalise them against women in much the same way as other hateful ideologies. As a woman in politics with a Twitter account, it won't surprise you to hear that I have received rape and death threats, and much more prominent women like Jess Phillips MP among others have spoken out about the regular violent abuse they receive. Joining me to discuss this issue is the writer and founder of the award-winning Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. Laura has written for a variety of publications, including The Guardian, Telegraph, and New York Times, covering numerous issues, including the gender pay gap and sexual abuse in schools. But it's her most recent book, Men Who Hate Women, that I wanted to cover today. She went undercover to expose vast misogynist networks and communities, diving deep into a form of extremism few know about. Hello, Laura. Welcome to The Bunker. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Um, before we get on to your research and findings, for listeners who may be you know, completely unfamiliar with this subculture that, that we're going to be covering, could we unpick a few of the acronyms that surround this subject matter so that we can get a bit of a picture of the men who occupy this movement? And, and so first up, what, what is an MRA? An MRA stands for a men's rights activist. This is a
0: movement of men who believe that there is a feminist conspiracy at the heart of our government and our society. They refer to our world as a gynocracy where women are unfairly privileged and advantaged. They believe that men and white men in particular are the true victims in today's society. And they spend their time rather than actually tackling any of the issues they claim to care about that affect men, whether it might be male mental health or male survivors of sexual violence. Instead, they devote their time almost exclusively to attacking and undermining feminists, to bringing spurious lawsuits against universities for having women's studies programmes or bars for having ladies' nights, or more seriously, trying to defund female domestic violence shelters or bringing constitutional challenges against the Violence Against Women Act.
1: And are they different from an acronym I I came across in in researching for this interview, uh, an MGTOW? I don't know if that is sort of, Meant to be yes. pronounced Mugto or something like that. That's else.
0: right. So, adherents of that movement would pronounce it Migtal. It stands mm-hmm. for Men Going Their Own Way. And it's another completely separate community, but which obviously has some overlap with the men's rights movement. Men Going Their Own Way also believe that the world is hopelessly stacked against men, that, for example, divorce courts are horribly biased, uh, that many men are tricked into raising children who aren't their own because of wicked and deceitful cheating women. But they believe that the solution, rather than attacking and fighting women, is to go far away from them altogether. So men going their own way believe that simply avoiding any kind of female company, contact or relationships in their lives whatsoever is the solution to the problem. There are different levels of men going their own way. Those who are really true acolytes might aim to almost drop off the societal grid altogether, trying to live far away from anybody at all.
1: What, like hermits or...?
0: Absolutely. But most of them tend to simply try and avoid having any kind of personal relationships with women. And many of them try to avoid um, one-to-one meetings with women in the workplace.
1: And And finally, what is an incel? An incel
0: stands for somebody who is involuntarily celibate. In other words, somebody who isn't having sex and is very angry about that because they'd like to be these are perhaps the most dangerous of the communities I investigate in the book. These are men, ironically, who both believe that women are having far too much sex, um, which they disapprove of sternly, but also who they are furious with for not having sex with themselves. They are men who regularly debate things like um, forced sexual slavery, or the forced redistribution of sex, where women would essentially be meted out by the government as sex slaves to individual men. They also discuss mass rape, and um, they talk about and fantasise about a day of retribution, which is a kind of uprising they envisage where incel men will massacre and murder as many women as they possibly can as punishment. Unfortunately, while this might sound very extreme and therefore you might think we're just talking about a handful of men, incels specifically have repeatedly carried out real-life massacres of mainly women. In fact, in the book, I link them to the murder or serious injury of over 100 people in the last 10 years alone. People might have heard of the case of Elliot Roger in California, for example, furious that attractive women from a local sorority house refused to have sex with him. He went to the sorority house with a gun and killed as many people as he could, killing six and injuring 14 more. Or the case of Alec Manassian, a man in Toronto who drove a speeding rental van deliberately into pedestrians, killing 10 people and injuring another 16, most of them women, both explicitly acting in the name of this extremist misogynistic hatred of women. But there have been many other cases that you might not have heard of. In the UK, for example, three women um, were stabbed in attempted murders by a teenager named Ben Moynihan, again, acting very explicitly in the name of his hatred of women and his inceldom. There are many more cases. Even just this year, for example, in Canada, one woman was killed with a machete in a massage parlor by an incel. Another woman and her young daughter, her toddler sitting in a buggy, were both stabbed by an incel in a Canadian parking lot. I mean, this
1: is this is truly horrific stuff. If you were to sort of put these uh, groups onto a spectrum, then it, 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 it was sort of broadly suggesting that at the the you know the less dangerous end potentially you've got the MRAs? then the MGTOWs and then the incels being being the most extreme or is it not that simple It's not that simple,
0: but you can certainly say, I think, that the incels are the most extreme and dangerous of these groups. It then gets a little bit muddier when you're looking at the other three groups I cover in the book, which also includes pickup artists. Pickup artists have very similar foundational principles to their ideas about men and women, the idea that women are a dehumanized commodity and that their primary function is to provide sex for men. But rather than have the same kind of um, outlook as incels, who believe that they're ultimately doomed and women will never have sex, with them, pickup artists believe that men can be trained in various often very misogynistic and and sometimes even forceful techniques to force women into having sex with them. I would say that when you look at men going their own way, men's rights activists and pickup artists, while well, they're all less dangerous than incels in terms of the number of physical assaults that have come out of these groups, they're also dangerous in their own ways, perhaps MGTOW the least of all, because men going their own way, um, generally speaking, simply want to avoid all contact with women. But that still has its ramifications for women in the workplace, mm-hmm. for example. Men's rights activists, I think, pose a danger because they have been very much assimilated into society and they tend yeah. to get a very mainstream hearing in the press, but also from politicians. And there's increasing evidence that. They're starting to have a real impact on political policy.
1: How diverse is this community ethnically? Or I mean, I, I I'm I'm getting the impression that you know these are majority white guys. Am I am I wrong on that front?
0: It's very difficult to get an entirely clear picture of these groups because we're dependent on what they self-report within forums, on the numbers who are signed up to different forums and on the locations that they are reportedly typing from in online cases. But yes, all the evidence we have suggests that these are predominantly white groups. A lot of the terminology and their ideology is inherently racist. For example, incels are not just furious that women don't have sex with them, they're particularly Curious about women having sex with black men or non-white men more generally um so there's a a number of reasons to think that there is um inherent racism in these communities that they're generally the majority of them are made up of white men often professional men often men in their kind of between 18 and 34 and there is very close links between these groups and white supremacist groups so there's another kind of element of inherent racism there
1: So I'm guessing that at some point you became worried enough that these kinds of men weren't just sort of sad keyboard warriors, you know, loners in their bedroom, but actually represented a much more sinister threat. So can you just tell us what initially prompted you to write the book in the first place?
0: Yes. um, Like you, as somebody who is a woman with an opinion on the internet, I've been aware of these groups for a long time, but there was a very compelling argument not to give them the oxygen of publicity until quite recently. It was about two, two and a half years ago when I started to notice that the ideas and even the false statistics I recognised from these groups were cropping up repeatedly in my school visits to work with young people in schools across the country, that boys everywhere from rural Scotland to inner city London were coming along with pre-prepared, completely false statistics, with a real unshakable belief that there is a feminist conspiracy, that men are under threat and attack, that Me Too is a witch hunt, which thousands of men are unfairly losing their jobs, and that things, for example, like 90% of rape allegations are false. At that point, I realised these groups actually were doing a very good job of their own publicity, whether given the oxygen or not, and that they were really reaching out to, and, and I would describe it as grooming and radicalising young boys. And at that point, I felt it was important to start talking about the problem.
1: And um, 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 what age are we talking here, sort of late teens or earlier than that? Um, maybe from about
0: the age of 12 onwards. We know from their own online writing that these groups deliberately target boys as young as 11. The boys I come across who are starting to talk about these issues would tend to be around the age of 14 on average.
1: You went undercover, as I understand it, to do the research. What did that entail?
0: you <laughs> These groups are notoriously paranoid. They're constantly accusing each other of being undercover journalists or FBI plants. Um, And in order to assimilate yourself into the groups, you have to really understand the lexicon. They speak an entirely different language. You won't see the word woman, for example, even though these conversations are almost all about hating women. You'll see them use the word void, which is a shortening of female humanoid, which gives you some idea of how little they see women as human beings. But there are also a million other terms, whether it might be LMR, a term which an acronym that pickup artists use to describe last minute resistance, the idea that any woman might change her mind just before you have sex, but you simply have to push through and force her to do it anyway. You might see terms like rape cell and incel who also rapes women. You might see crossover terms, for example, that sort of suggest that somebody is both an incel and a white supremacist and so on like an alt-right cell would be an example of that. So in order to infiltrate several of these groups, um, I created a persona of a young disillusioned white man named Alex in his early 20s who didn't have a girlfriend and was feeling pretty unlucky in life and pretty uncomfortable with a mainstream narrative that he perceived as claiming he was privileged when he didn't feel very privileged at all. And through Alex, I infiltrated a number of different networks, groups, communities, forums, platforms, private groups, chat rooms and so on to get a sense of the real scale of this network
1: and I think it's pretty clear what it is most that incels hate about women you know the fact that that they won't sleep with them but what are the most common complaints about women that that the other men make why do they hate us
0: there is a lot of bitterness about a perceived loss of things to which men have been brought up, perhaps to think that they're entitled. So the idea that men really ought to be running the government, that they ought to have all of the jobs, that women ought to be at home looking after the children. And they're basically kind of harking back to a perceived rose-tinted bygone world where men were men, they were strong and tough and manly, they were in charge of their women and in charge of the world and women shut up and did what they wanted. They're really harking back to a very extreme view This, what they'd like is to take away women's voting rights and their citizenship and for them to be entirely controlled by men. But this is quite closely connected to some of their other complaints. They also believe, for example, that we should be taking away any kind of protections for women in the workplace, um, that sexual violence laws just simply see men wrongly convicted. But they also conversely are furious about fathers' rights and fathers not being allowed custody of children in divorce cases, which There doesn't seem to be actually a systemic problem. The evidence doesn't seem to stack up with what these men are claiming. But nonetheless, many of them individually may have had very bad experiences and they extrapolate from these individual experiences to suggest a kind of vast conspiracy against them but they don't tend to see the problems within their own reasoning. So they don't recognise, for example, the issue that they're both advocating for men to have a greater role in parenting their children, but also that women should stay at home and men should be the ones going out to work and, and not raising kids. It doesn't really stack up.
1: And how big are these networks? And more importantly, I suppose, how fast do you expect that they're growing?
0: I think that they're very significant networks. A single incel group that I looked at, for example, had over 100,000 members. And there are literally thousands of different forums, communities, websites, blogs, vlogs. A single MIGTAL vlogger on YouTube, for example, has almost 100 million views of his videos alone. And there are hundreds of others just like him. So I think we are talking about a very significant community, although obviously there may be overlap in these numbers between who's signed up multiple multiple forums, and so on. One of the experts I spoke to for the book estimated that in the UK alone, the size of these communities might be around 10,000 people. In the United States, Canada, Australia, which are certainly other hotspots, I'd suggest that that number would be
1: much higher. And is this, I mean, you you have touched on this, but is it a gateway to the alt-right, far-right movement? Um, It is certainly
0: a gateway for the um, far right and for white supremacy, and we can see that there are several kind of markers that prove that. The first is that incel terminology, the kind of lexicon created by incels and extreme misogynists, has now been very largely adopted by the far right. You can see it in the spread of the language. But also the people who are now some of the leading lights of the far right made their name in the men's rights and incel communities, particularly during a phenomenon called Gamergate, which was a mass online harassment campaign against prominent female journalists and gamers. And you can see, you can trace the paths of men who made their names in that movement and have now moved on to become leading members of the far right. But we also know this from their own recruitment strategies. Members of the far right, members of white supremacist organisations like Andrew Anglin, for example, the founder of the Daily Stormer, which is a famous kind of neo-Nazi website, has famously released a guide for people writing on his website in which he explains that they need to entrap and draw young boys in as young as 11 and that extreme misogyny and anti-feminism is one of the very best kind of slip roads as a stepping stone to get young people into the far right, into neo-Nazism.
1: So uh, what I'm hearing is that incels are potentially, you know, the most immediately dangerous, particularly in countries where they have access to guns, but that actually systemically, it could be the MRAs that are the biggest risks, because these are the ones that are are able to get themselves into even more senior positions of power. So I would ask you if that thesis is correct. And as a follow up, um, is Donald Trump an MRA? (laughs) Um, Yes, I think you're right about that thesis. And I think that they're dangerous in different ways.
0: So an incel might go out and massacre dozens of women with a gun. But we don't know, for example, how many men who've been trained and coached within the $100 million international industry of pickup artistry might have gone out and sexually assaulted or certainly sexually harassed a woman in following the rules that they've been taught online. The numbers of women affected there may be far higher, but they're very unlikely to hit the headlines. In the book, for example, I talk about the case of one woman who actually managed to trace her rape back to a pickup artist website, and those pickup artists were actually jailed later. Um, There are also, of course, the dangers of men's rights activists who are starting to catch the ears of politicians around the world. So, For example, Betsy DeVos, who's been in charge of um, American education um, under the Donald Trump administration, has been meeting with groups which are known. For what the Southern Poverty Law Centre would describe as male supremacist um, ideology and that after meeting with them she changed some of the regulations around sexual violence on college campuses to benefit perpetrators and make it more difficult, um, I would characterise and I think most people would agree um, for sexual violence victims to see justice. Here in the UK a male MP who is actually a member of our Women and Equality Select Committee openly has spoken at and, and worked alongside members of men's rights activist groups and at their conferences. That was Philip Davis, MP, who has regularly filibustered in Parliament to try and prevent laws that would support tighter action against violence against women and girls, for example, from being passed. At one point, when he had a job that involved justice in Parliament, for example, he spoke at a men's rights activist conference where he said women just want to have their cake and eat it and suggested that the justice system was really stacked against men. So there is quite a, a worry about the kind of respectability of these men's rights activists and the mainstream coverage they get, which makes their ideas more normal. For example, there was one group called the Anti-Feminism League, which realised how much coverage it could capitalise on from the mainstream press by rebranding itself a so-called political party, Justice for Men and Boys. That political party was then given enormous coverage across the BBC, Sky News, regional BBC radio stations, national platforms in which to express their ideology. This was a group that had articles on its website saying things like 13 Reasons Women Lie About Being Raped, And it was a group that, at the general election, managed to amass a grand total of 216 votes amongst all its candidates. So you can see how the level of the coverage that they were given in the mainstream... Disproportionate. Exactly, was disproportionate.
1: Laura, uh, in The Guardian, uh, Sonia Soda wrote, take the boy on the anti-female websites and watch him grow into an adult misogynist. So tech is clearly an enabler to all of this. Um, Tell us about how the algorithms of social media sites can take somebody on a journey from sort of mild curiosity or even having just sort of stumbled across a a MGTOW or or MRA or incel video to becoming an engaged consumer of these ideas and, and potentially an activist. Well, we know that social media can be a very powerful tool for radicalisation.
0: And we know that YouTube in particular tends to crop up in um, analyses of what's helped to radicalise people who have ended up in various forms of extremism. To understand this, I think you have to recognise the enormous power it wields. I think many of us adults think of YouTube as the domain of grumpy cat videos and movie trailers. But for young people, 85% of them use YouTube. It's the biggest, most popular social media platform for young people. And the majority of them crucially say that that's where they get their news from as well. So at that point, it becomes increasingly important that YouTube really is almost in the kind of stranglehold, I would suggest, of a network of far right, right leaning and extremist misogynistic influences a data and society report suggested that this is a kind of interlinked influencer network and that it's very powerful because it works with YouTube's algorithms. People who have been former engineers of YouTube have come forward to explain that the YouTube algorithm is about extending your watch time for as long as possible. So it isn't necessarily providing you with the best quality content or the most relevant, but more and more extreme content because we know that that's what keeps people watching. So if you start on YouTube watching something about, a cookery programme, you might suddenly find yourself watching an all-you-can-eat hot dog competition. It's not so serious if you're looking at a video about jogging and suddenly find yourself watching content about ultramarathons, as one New York Times columnist put (laughs) it. But it does matter if you suddenly are looking about something quite insipid about feminism or women, And very quickly, and I did this experiment for the book with a kind of fresh screen and browser and empty cache to see what would happen. And almost immediately, the videos that YouTube's algorithm automatically queues up and starts to play for you, the suggested next video that it offers, took you down a rabbit hole, first suggesting that the gender pay gap was a myth, then that women who are feminists are feminazis who hate men and want to undermine them, and finally ending up in the realm of false rape allegations and feminist conspiracies. The power of YouTube is absolutely enormous. It accounts for 37% of all mobile internet traffic internationally. And if you put that statistic together with the fact that 70% of videos watched on YouTube are the ones recommended by its algorithm, not the ones people went initially looking for, then suddenly you have this dumbfounding statistic that a quarter of all mobile internet traffic in the world is just consists of people watching videos that YouTube and its algorithm have chosen for them. So at that point, what that algorithm is doing suddenly becomes very important indeed.
1: And so finally, how can we put the brakes on this movement and, and reduce the numbers of extreme misogynists? I mean, is, is it up to the tech giants and for us to legislate against them in our, in our parliaments? Or can the average listener take some action somehow?
0: I think both. I think we need to attack this from all angles in order for it to be successful. I think we need to see Um, From a kind of policy level, we need to see people who are going out committing deliberate atrocities and massacres in the name of this extremist ideology, being named as terrorists and being treated as as such. This is terrorism. We just don't call it that because the victims are women. Um, We're not nearly as quick when a white man um, commits an atrocity to think of it with the label terrorism um, as we are, for example, in the case of Islamist extremism. That also means that we don't have anywhere near the same level of focus on prevention as we do for other forms of extremism. We need to recognise that what's happening to boys online is grooming and radicalisation. And we need to fund and support teacher training and schools to be able to support young people not to be drawn into that. But there's also things that every one of us can do I think in a much broader sense in trying to tackle some of the societal issues that feed into all this if we were to tackle many of the issues deliberately and specifically affecting men and boys then we'd take away some of the kind of ammunition that these online sites have or we, they use it disingenuously um, but they do talk about male mental health crisis and some of the men who wander into this web are lonely men, isolated men, men with problems who aren't finding a space to tackle them offline So I'd like to see improved provision for male mental health, and in particular spaces for teenage boys to feel that sense of community and purpose that they're getting from these radical websites in an offline setting. We know that 600 youth centres have been closed down during recent cuts, for example. There is obviously a real gap there in terms of providing for young people's needs offline. But also, I think at a broader level, a lot of what fuels and makes these kinds of conspiracy theories possible is the rampant gender stereotypes within our society. Ironically, we need to tackle exactly the kind of issues that men's rights activists are so devoted to. The idea that boys don't cry, that men are tough and manly, that they should be in charge of their country and their women. And trying to dismantle gender stereotypes from a young age would also help make it harder for teenage boys to be brainwashed into dehumanising their female peers. If you think about the way in which boys and girls tend to segregate themselves by gender at school, in parties, in their activities, it's often accepted or even encouraged. But if we were to encourage more mixed-sex platonic friendships from a young age, if boys were to be able to form better relationships with girls that weren't hypersexualized, then they would know more girls and it would be more difficult for these groups to convince them that all women are dehumanised, evil foids.
1: Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's, It's alarming stuff, but I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. What's next for you on the work front?
0: Um, My next young adult novel, which is coming out next year, um, it's a follow-up to The Burning, which I published last year. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
1: Oh, fantastic. Best of luck with that. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you haven't already done so, please head over to iTunes uh, and leave us a review on the Apple podcast platform, because as Laura's just told us, it is all about those algorithms. See you again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.